This episode is sponsored by Canaccord Genuity Wealth Management, experienced wealth managers who go above and beyond to guide and support you. CanDo is more than just an attitude. It's navigating today for a brighter tomorrow. Visit CanDoWealth.com. Hello and welcome to Coffee House Shots, the Spectator's daily politics podcast. I'm Max Jeffrey, and I'm joined by Isabel Oakeshott and Fraser Nelson. Matt Hancock was in front of the COVID inquiry today. Isabel, you said that in the whole year that you worked with Matt Hancock, you didn't recall him ever making the key argument that he made today. What did you make of his performance? Well, it was really extraordinary, actually, to watch Matt give evidence today. I mean, I know that despite that very assured exterior, it is something he's really been worrying about. You know, when I was working with him on his book, there was absolutely an eye to the future inquiry and him wanting to make his case on a number of fronts before today's historic session. But in all the time that we worked together, he he didn't put at the heart of his argument what he what he made out today um, and fundamental to his case today is that the single key failure in pandemic planning um, by the UK government was to think that pandemics can't be prevented and stopped or stopped from reaching these shores. So in other words, the whole of his argument today, the whole of the thrust of it, and he kept returning to it almost to the irritation of the leading barrister, the KC, was that basically more lockdown, quicker lockdown, harsher lockdown would have actually prevented or could have prevented the disaster that followed. I mean, hear that clip now of where Matt Hancock says that he wants the inquiry to conclude that the UK government could stop a future pandemic in its tracks. All I can do is ensure that this inquiry gets to the bottom of it and that for the future we learn the right lessons so that we stop a pandemic in its tracks much, much earlier. Fraser, what do you make of that argument and the way that he's framing the inquiry already? That really um, jumps out at me. I mean, I'm not quite sure what he's thinking. What country in the world stops COVID? I mean, China did as full a lockdown as you can think. and 80% of China's population has had COVID. The lesson from this is that you cannot stop pandemics in their tracks. This is not a toolkit that the human race possesses. And you can cause huge amounts of social and economic damage by attempting to do this. Uh, so rather than conclude that look at the evidence of lockdowns around the world and ask whether they succeeded, he seems to be taking it for granted that they succeeded and that his only regret doesn't seem, seems to be that there were not harsher, longer lockdowns, still chasing this fantasy that it's possible by to stop a, a pandemic. I was also a bit concerned that Hugo Keith, the KC, seem to allow this line of inquiry. I mean, I'd be, I would have wanted him to be asking, look, why didn't you do a cost-benefit analysis of, hang, of lockdown? Why did you reach for this strategy, given that it was completely unproven? Why didn't you do what the Swedes did, which is to say that you cannot, as health secretary, implement something for which there is no scientific support? None of these questions were coming, which suggests to me a bias in the inquiry already, that the whole direction of the, consequ- of the um, questions, of the range of evidence, seems seems to be uh, basically accepting rather than questioning the premise of lockdown theory. A word that Hancock used repeatedly today is ironic. And if I can use that word myself, uh, the irony of the way this this inquiry has been conducted 
is actually that the more sweeping the statement and the assumption on the part of the witness, the less it's challenged. So the case he has been was quite challenging to Mr Hancock in relation to whether he should have, should have or should not have appeared at certain meetings of pandemic planning. And, you know, he, he pulled Hancock up on a number of occasions about the minutiae of, of certain sort of procedural things. But time and again, witnesses have been allowed to make huge sweeping statements about the impact of austerity, so-called austerity, for example, or about the impact of Brexit without that really being subjected to much scrutiny by those uh, in charge of questioning the witnesses. And I think that's quite disturbing. And as Fraser was saying, you know, the the fantasy land that Mr Hancock seems to inhabit, uh, it's quite extraordinary, really, because if we follow his argument to its conclusion, this country will be continually locking down because over the last few years, there have been many near-pandemic disasters. Is it his argument that each and every time global health authorities detect a possible threat, we're going to rush into lockdown? Because if so, I'm not much looking forward to the future. Fraser, do you think there's any any truth in Matt Hancock's argument that the Department of Health needed a sort of structural overhaul? He said they didn't even know how many care homes there were in England and that things like Brexit planning, no-deal Brexit planning meant that they couldn't focus on pandemic preparedness? Well, they did. Look, at the time, Britain prided itself on having one of the best pandemic preparedness in the world. This wasn't just an idle claim. They used to actually test it. You'd go through war gamings. We spent millions and millions of pounds on pandemic preparedness. Uh, I think, of course, we prepared for flu as opposed to a coronavirus. And the SARS outbreak allowed East Asia to work out that coronaviruses behave in different ways to the flu pandemic. So this goes to show the sort of the false security of pandemic planning. You can never really tell what the next pathogen is going to be. What you can do is try to work out that you've um, decided in advance what measures are effective and what ones aren't. But when it comes to the care homes, for example, that was the big mistake. Not just Britain, but every country in the world made. You thought the lockdown was enough. This is part of, again, the flaw in lockdown theory. Neil Ferguson and people like that were coming up with ridiculous and later debunked models showing that if you lock down enough, this would pretty much send the virus off a cliff edge, etc. In fact, there were, um, you know, the, the virus would transmit itself in, in care homes, and something like a third of UK deaths were in care homes. So it's all very well locking down the rest of the country, but it wasn't true, as Neil Ferguson and others said, that that would bring virus transmission um, to a halt that it would knock it off a cliff. The virus kept transmitting. And um, and by the way, 33%, while it was bad for the UK, it was actually worse in Scotland, 44%, Sweden, 47%, Netherlands, it was 50%, closer to 60% in Belgium and Canada. So that proportion of care homes that they claimed in COVID deaths was endemic throughout the world. And it was when you look at the Sweden's COVID inquiry, by the way, which finished 18 months ago, as opposed to the UK one that's going to drag on for years, this was very much the focus of their one. The big mistake they made was not thinking about the care homes, realising, of course, that the older you were, the more likely you were to die of COVID. And if you're living, if you're 80 years old, living in a care home, using agency staff who were not really being tested because tests weren't really there, and they were the ones seizing it into the care homes. So that is the big miss for not just Britain, but the rest of the world, mate. Though why it's going to take Britain several years to come to a conclusion that others made years ago is another question. 
As well as Fraser said there, Sweden's already concluded its COVID inquiry. Um, the UK's public hearings are going to go on until 2026. Is the entire setup of the inquiry not fit for purpose? Is this the completely wrong approach? Well, one of the reasons that I made the decision that I did to um, to publish with the Telegraph the some of the very many WhatsApp messages um, of Matt Hancock between him and so many other members of the government is because I don't have confidence in the public inquiry, um, and that is no reflection on the judge who I think is doing her level best in impossible circumstances. Uh, I think that one thing we're really missing from all of this is is quite simply a deadline. Uh, it's no good having a public inquiry with no deadline whatsoever. Uh, It is encouraging that the judge has said that she will produce reports as they go along. So the inquiry is being conducted in modules. This one at the moment is about preparedness and planning and the hope is that we'll see a some conclusions from this segment uh, well before the next uh, the next segment gets underway or probably not realistically before the next segment but certainly before 2026. And for people who don't know the ins and outs of the inquiry, how transparent have they been in terms of releasing the evidence that's been given to it? You said, for instance, that you weren't given Matt Hancock's March 2020 WhatsApps, but also you can't quite tell whether they've been handed over to the inquiry or not. It's disappointing um, that it isn't clear whether he has handed over those messages or not, and that he wasn't asked about those by the KC today. What you do see during evidence sessions is various documents that even if you're not attending in person, you can see online. But in terms of the availability of the vast amounts of source material that has been handed to the inquiry to the public, that is not it's not readily obtainable. Mm. Uh, I mean, one of the problems the inquiry has had is that certain departments have Um, and we can read into this what we like, have actually swamped the inquiry uh, with all sorts of stuff that's frankly not very relevant. Um, Now, what's their agenda in doing that? Maybe it's just quickest and easiest to just do a massive document dump, um, or maybe certain individuals or organisations actually have an interest in making this as difficult as possible. I was struck, Isabel, about the fact that they've obviously got Matt Hancock's messages. He's handed them all to the inquiry. So they, like you and me, will have had the joy of going through all of his 2.5 million words, etc. But they didn't seem to make any reference to it today. It didn't, the WhatsApp, his WhatsApp files didn't seem to inform their line of questioning. Well, and, and specifically, there was no mes- mention of the missing file, uh, missing as far as I'm concerned anyway, March 2020, which would seem to be pivotal to this particular module of the inquiry. That was when he went from thinking lockdown would be a disaster and it shouldn't happen to thinking it was the solution. So that was a period where Sage was unanimously advising against lockdown to Sage uni- advising for lockdown. That That's the lacuna in, in your, your files. Yes, and I think that it's clearly hugely important to try to fill in that gap. The inquiry has the power to do that. Uh, whatever uh, Matt Hancock has done with those files, and it's possible that they have gone on, gone astray for some reason, the recipients of the messages will all still have them if they too haven't lost them somewhere. So there are many opportunities to actually fill in those gaps. And I think it's surprising and disappointing that that wasn't addressed today. It's funny, when I, when I saw Hancock sit down after this, um, I thought back to thinking of all the um, the attacks that Isabel got for releasing the Hancock files in the first place, which I admit, even though Isabel and I were working together on this for the Telegraph, I was uh, really uh, wrong to underestimate the amount of people asking Isabel, how dare you break this story? How dare you put this in the public domain? Why don't you wait for the inquiry? 
And of course, the reason I mean, it's like asking the journalist, you know, why are you telling the public things that politicians would would rather kept secret? It's because you're a journalist; that's your job. But the public interest defence was that the, we did not trust the inquiry to do this in a timely way, or indeed to do it at all. Mm. Now, seeing the Hancock testimony today which seems to completely disregard the volumes of stuff which the inquiry will know because he told them of what happened behind the scenes. It seems as if this inquiry isn't really that interested in getting to the thornier, more difficult questions. It's got the, it's got the witness, um, it's got the evidence, it didn't put the two together. This seems to be more, so far, to be a kind of performative uh, resuscitation of the cliches that we were hearing during the pandemic, rather than a forensic attempt to get to the truth. And I've noticed this in a lot of the inquiries. I've noticed the, I'm a bit depressed by the, the dramatic poses that the, the KCs and the, and the questioners put. It's almost as if they're doing this for YouTube, rather than trying to do it in a judicial way to try to uncover the truth. So all of this, to me, underlines the importance of having put so much of this in the public domain, which Isabel has already, and hoping that policymakers and the public can make their own, um, draw their own verdicts on what we now know to be true. And also, my, my final point here, of just how much difference there can be between what we know Matt Hancock was saying at the time mm-hmm. and between what he's remembering now. Isabel started off this, this podcast saying of oh, this, this basically this, this invented narrative that he's got, which he didn't even have when he was working with her on his own memoirs. And that's the problem with inquiries of this type. You're inviting people to recall things that happened a couple of years ago, but also this will be done in a self-exculpatory way to try not really to get to the truth, but to point the narrative to where you want it to go. In his case, he's desperate for the conclusion to be that Britain didn't lock down hard enough or fast enough already. And this, hence, he's giving his evidence in that context rather than helping people find out why we were locked down, why our COVID deaths were so high, and why we didn't learn the lessons at the time, or now. I mean, Matt Hancock gave evidence for only a matter of hours this morning, and that's it as far as his contribution to this module of the pandemic inquiry goes. And when you think about the volume of material from his WhatsApps that occupied the Telegraph's finest investigative team for the best part of two months, in fact, a little more than that, going through all of that material with all its revelations, uh, that provides you with the contrast between what can come out of a couple of hours of pretty anodyne questioning of Matt Hancock this morning and what you can actually see from the cache of WhatsApp's messages, which I think are far more revelatory. Fraser, if you were in Hugo Key's position and you were there questioning Matt Hancock, what would you have liked to have asked him? Well, there are so many questions that come to light after Isabel's um, WhatsApp files. First of all, the lacuna she mentioned. Why did you go from thinking that lockdown was a bad idea unanimously into thinking that it was the best idea? Why didn't you do a basic cost-benefit analysis? In every single public health intervention, whether it's smoking adverts or whatever, you do a plus and the minuses. What Was that ever done for COVID? Was there any attempt done to estimate the effect on um, children's education or, or look at other public health, uh, the effect on cancer care, the effect on mental health? Were they done? If not, why not? Why was it these basic democratic safeguards collapsed so quickly? Why did he decide to switch to government by WhatsApp? That was his model. Weren't there any sort of more formal, rigorous ways that would have supported good decision-making? Explain to us why you ended up chortling away with four or five people in the WhatsApp group governing the country. I think these are still very important questions, which now it's horribly obvious are simply never going to be asked. 
Isabel? I think, I think we'd quite like to hire Fraser as the replacement for the uh, various <laughs> barristers there. I, I mean, first of all, of course, I'd want to ask, and this is something I really wanted to ask Matt Hancock face to face so I could look him in the eye as we finished our project together writing the book. Why didn't you want me to see the contents of your WhatsApp messages in March 2020? Did you delete them? Why have you taken them out apparently of the exchanges that you've shared with me i never got the opportunity to ask him that because he disappeared into the i'm a celebrity jungle Uh, and secondly i would like to ask him how he could uh, really how someone of his intelligence can look at the examples around the world of the countries that locked down the hardest and longest and harshest and most systematically and look at what happened the outcomes in those countries and still reasonably argue that this is a solution to the next threat. Of course, if you do ask Mike Hancock any of his questions, he will say one thing, wait for the inquiry. I'll talk to the inquiry, I won't talk to anybody else. So in other words, the inquiry basically has acted for a shield for politicians to hide behind, where what the public deserves are answers. Thank you, Fraser. Thank you, Isabel. And thank you very much for listening.